Good morning. So we, um, you know, we, we have a, a three-year-old, and currently, one of the things that, that Graham is going through that, that is kind of cool to watch is he's, he's learning about this idea of fair, right? And so we have, we have constant battles in our house. You can tell that he's starting to be really concerned with the fact that everything about what he gets or does is fair, and so for Graham, there's certain things that just aren't, aren't fair that to you and I make perfect sense, right? Like, why can't I have that seventh muffin for breakfast? Or why, you know, why do I have to wear a coat? Or why do I have to go to bed when I want to or don't want to? And when I do have to go to bed, why can't I bring all the toys that I want to bring into bed with me into bed? Like all these little things. And it's funny and it's comical, but it's also really neat to watch a three-year-old toddler start to develop this idea of fairness. Right? And, and, and as we've been watching him, one of the things that, that I'm kind of seeing is, the, is this notion that fairness and, and a desire for it and an understanding of it really is something that is ingrained within the humanity, of, you know, within who we are at the core of, of our created beings. Right? Like we're made to want fairness. Like, we, we want that. No one taught Graham that there's such a thing as unfair, right? He's, he's starting to show the first signs. Like, he's never lied yet, but, like, you start to see him churning when you ask him if he's done something wrong, right? And so inevitably, within the next year or two or three, we're going to start to see him tell lies as well. Like, no one taught him how to do that. No one said, like, you could just make up a different reality. But, like, these things are ingrained, but he wants it. And I think one of the things it tells us about who we are as people is that we have in us a deep ingrained sense and drive and desire for justice, right? Every one of us wants justice. Graham's not the only one. It's not like we grow up and we just forsake our desire for justice. Every one of us wants it, and in some ways, every one of us is intrinsically angry at the lack of justice in this world, right? It might be on a small scale. Maybe you're angry because justice would dictate that you should have gotten that promotion at work and not the coworker who doesn't ever do anything, right? Every time there's a group project, you're the one who works, but he's the one who gets all the credit and those kinds of things. It might be in a macro way, in a large way. We see injustices in this country, right? We have people that are innocently hurt or people that are innocently put down and oppressed. We see it all over the place. There are whole countries where oppression reigns supreme, where there is really no sense of justice. And for us, one of the hardest things is that we pride ourselves as a country on having one of the best systems of justice. But yet we have to admit, regardless of our politics, that there are many, many times where our justice system fails. It doesn't even claim within itself to be perfect. It's what we have. We don't have full justice. Innocent people go to prison. It seems like every week I read about, you know, in the world of DNA testing, there's somebody who has spent 30 years in prison for a murder that it turned out they didn't commit, right? That person's whole life, 30-some years. The other day I read about a, a man who was 37, and I think, like, wow, my entire life, I'm 36 years old. This guy spent more than my entire life in prison for something he didn't do. That's not just, Right? We yearn for justice. We want it to be fair. If you don't think you have a sense of justice, then just tape yourself when you watch a football game. And then watch it back later 
And tell me if you don't have some kind of innate, maybe depraved, but still innate idea of desiring justice. The very idea of justice and freedom and all these things are baked into who we are as a country. What does it say in our Pledge of Allegiance? With liberty and justice for all, right? That's our pledge to the country that we are. That we will be a place where there is justice served. We need it. We want it. We crave it. And we see it even in a three-year-old. In our passage today, the the preacher, who we assume is Solomon, right? For the rest of our time, we're just going to assume that it is Solomon. There's debate on this, but I I am convinced as your pastor that Solomon is the the preacher in Ecclesiastes. If you want to debate me and convince me otherwise, I'm happy to do that. But until then, we'll just say Solomon as if he's the guy, right? Solomon is wrestling in the passage today with this same idea of justice, And one of the things that's interesting is, even though Solomon is considered to be the wisest person to have ever lived, and my three-year-old is in, like, not even in the top 36 billion of the the wisest people who's ever lived, their arguments and their their way that they look at justice is very similar, right? There's a a similar groaning about things not being fair or the way they are. Yeah, he might sound more eloquent than Graham. But the conversations that Graham has with me in my house and the conversations that Solomon has in this passage are really the same exact conversations. Um, This guy just says it with far more Shakespearean type of eloquence, right, than Graham could. Graham just sits on the floor and cries and kicks his feet at stuff. Solomon has some really nice big words that he uses to describe it. But they're the same thing. And so this, this passage this morning is a sad passage, as is much of Ecclesiastes. It's a lament about the way things are, or in this case, the way things aren't but should be. And so let's take a moment and we'll look at um, this together, and then we'll try to unpack and see what the Lord might be saying to us this morning. So I would invite us to stand as we read uh, from Ecclesiastes chapter 3. Uh, We'll start in verse 16, and we'll go until chapter 4, verse 3, this morning. Starting in 3.16. Moreover, I saw under the sun that in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And in the place of righteousness, even there was wickedness. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked. For there is a time for every matter and for every work. I said in my heart with regard to the children of man that God is testing them and that they may see that they themselves are but beasts. For what happens to the children of man and what happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. They all have the same breath. A man has no advantage over the beasts, for all is vanity. All go to one place. All are from the dust, and to dust all return. Who knows whether the spirit of man goes upward and the spirit of the beast goes down into the earth. So I saw that there is nothing better than a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? Again, I saw all the oppressions that they are done under the sun. And behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. On the side of their oppressors there was power, and there was none, no one to comfort them. And I thought the dead who are already dead more fortunate than the living who are still alive. But better than both he who has not yet been and he and has not seen the evil deeds that are done under the sun. It's the word of the Lord. Have a seat. <clears throat> Let's note a few things. Number one, this is a deeply depressing passage. Right? He, he actually at one point goes like, 
the people that are dead now are better off than all of us here. But really, the people who are off even better than the ones who are dead are the ones who haven't even come to be alive yet because they haven't experienced the truth of all the things I'm telling you. He's like, listen, better to be dead than alive, but better to be unborn at all than to be dead. Happy fluffy time with Solomon this morning, right? He's not a, a, a joyful guy in this passage. He's, he's hitting on some really harsh things, and, and we have to understand a little bit more about Solomon's life context as he's writing the book of Ecclesiastes. I think one of the things that we like to do with biblical texts is we read all of Scripture through the lens of someone who has read all of Scripture and the entirety of God's redemptive plan. Right? We read a book, a random book in the Old Testament, through the lens of people that know the cross of Jesus Christ and the promise of the, the second coming, and, and life after death, and all of these things. And, and, and we read it as people, more than anything, that are followers of God. Solomon, as he's writing this, is writing as someone who isn't really following God. Right? God isn't the subject, really, of, Ecclesi of Ecclesiastes. What we have in the book, you know, and he says it over and over again, you know, he, I've chased everything that's under the sun. I've looked for uh, meaning in pleasures. I've looked for meaning in money. I've looked for meaning in work. I've looked for meaning here and here and here, everywhere. And, and Solomon, having all the wisdom and all the wealth more than anyone has ever lived on the world, we just assume, well, he's, he's telling us he's been through it all, and here's what I have to say at the end. But what we're actually getting in Ecclesiastes is Solomon wrestling in real time. And so when we're reading this passage, we're, not re we're reading it through the lens of someone who isn't looking to God for answers. When, when Solomon says, I have spent years pursuing the pleasures of the flesh, pursuing the things of wealth and trinkets and money and work, it's not metaphorical. He's actually done those things. We're, we're talking about a guy who actually experimentally went and sought meaning for years, decades maybe even, in things like work and money and power. And so when Solomon begins to write stuff like this, we're watching him actually wrestle with it. And why that matters today is that I think this, this kind of a passage gives us a glimpse into how the mind and wrestling works of somebody who isn't a Christian. It's really hard for, for us who have hope to put ourselves in the mindset of someone who doesn't operate with that hope. But that's what we see here. We go, look, if you don't have Christ, if you don't have the hope of the resurrection of the cross that paid for your sins so that you might have eternal life, if you live with that not even on your radar, if you, if you don't think that God is really going to do anything, if you don't think he factors into the equation at all, if this life is just all there is, well, these are the kinds of ways that you would wrestle with things. And so that's what Solomon does. He says, I saw under the sun. This phrase under the sun means in an earthly sense. I saw that in this world, which is the only place Solomon's looking at the time, what? That in the place of justice, even there was wickedness. And he means in the place of justice to be a literal thing. Right? He's not saying in, instead of justice, there's wickedness. He's saying, look, in the place of justice. Where do we think of in our country today? If you had to say the place of justice is where, what would you say? 
right? Courts, federal courts, Supreme Court, local magistrate, whatever. Most people would say the Supreme Court is kind of the be-all, end-all, right? What, what Solomon is saying that in, in that place, that actual place of justice, in the, in the systems of justice, there's wickedness. Like where there should be justice happening, that place, that seed of justice is corrupted by utter wickedness instead. And where there should be righteousness, where there should be a goodness that comes out of it, where things should be decided based on, on goodness and merit, you have wickedness too. So he's saying, look, everything, everything is corrupted from a justice system. It's not working. There's corruption and wickedness and selfish gain and decisions that are being made, not based on what's good and right and fair, but what's on expedience and, and helpful to certain people above others, right? And then later on in 4, he says, again, I saw all the oppressions that are done under the sun, and behold, the tears of the oppressed, and they had no one to comfort them. The justice system was corrupt and evil and wicked, and so there is oppression happening, and there's no mechanism to stop it from happening. Those people who are being oppressed, who are experiencing it, there's no hope because there's no one there to comfort them. They don't have anyone they can turn to for help. I mean, imagine if one of the people in this church right now got up and started just beating on another person and they were looking to everyone else in the room for help and we were just kind of like, well, that's interesting. Right? Some places we see that today, right? We see someone assault another and what do people do? They pull their phones out and they start taping. Like, pull the guy off of it. No, right? But we, we, we have a lack of justice in this passage. And because we have a lack of justice, oppression runs rampant. And there seems to be no end or comfort or hope in sight to stop it. Right? He's processing as an unbeliever. And so he sees the world that we're in. And he sees the oppression that they're suffering. He says, there's no, there's no way out. We don't have anywhere that, that we can go. And then, then there's this glimpse of God that shows up, right, in, in verse 17. I said in my heart, God will judge the righteous and the wicked, for there is a time for every matter and for every work. So here's what Solomon's saying. He actually kind of acknowledges God a little bit. He goes, you know, there's, I mean, I, it would seem that if there's a time for everything, as we learned in chapter 3, 1 through 8, right, if there's a time for all things, well, there should be a time for justice as well, and that God would be the perfect candidate to dish out this kind of justice, but then I said in my heart with regard to the children of men that God is testing them that they may see that they are but beasts. For what happens to children of man happens to the beasts is the same. As one dies, so dies the other. So there should be justice and he expects that God might do it. But he's saying, look, it's like humans have no different fate from the beasts. We all end up dead. Again, as with the rest of Ecclesiastes, death is the great equalizer that somehow levels the playing field of any kind of hope for meaning. Right? So where God should put justice forth, instead man just ends up dying the same way the beasts end up dying. Not that man and beast aren't different, but their fate is the exact same. Again, there is no hope. And so Solomon responds, you know, it's fun watching his mind kind of work. Solomon responds by going to a default that we tend to go to. He says, you know, look, here, if this is the case, um, so I saw that there is nothing better than that a man should rejoice in his work, for that is his lot. Who can bring him to see what will be after him? So he's saying, look, 
there's just this hopeless. There's no oppressions everywhere. There's no justice. There's no seeming end in sight. God should kind of do something, but all men just die the way beasts do. There seems to be no justice served. This person was oppressed, and then they died. They never got their, their, their diligence, their justice, their, their revenge, or whatever it is. They were never able to receive any of that. They just died. So, like, what the heck hope is there? I guess I'll just keep my head down and do my job, right? He throws himself into his work. But he realizes that it doesn't work, no pun intended. Right? He throws himself into his work, but what does that do? It doesn't solve anything for him. Right? He, he glimpses the hope that God might bring some justice or some meaning to work. We do this all the time. When I meet a new person, or when you meet a new person, wherever it is, I guarantee you, what's one of the first three questions that you're asked? What do you do? Of all that you are as a human being and all of the life that you've lived and anything, I meet you for the first time. All the things that I could seek to know about who you are, right? The first thing I care about generally is your name, just so I know what to call you. But then what's the next thing we ask? Where do you work? What do you do? We tie up. We do the same thing Solomon does. The world has no hope. There's despair. We can't find meaning, so we bury ourselves into the identity of our work and our careers, and we seek refuge there. We try to find some meaning in it. But then as we get to four, he just says again, I saw that all oppressions are done under the sun and behold the tears. So even as he's throwing himself into work, he just despairs again. Right? Solomon's work was being king. So he's trying to say, like, oh, look, there's this injustice. There seems to be no solution. I guess I'll just get to work. And he tries to maybe do some things, but he goes, man, there's just oppression everywhere. What's the point to even working? And the rest of chapter 4 is a long unpacking of this idea of work again. We won't read it just for time's sake, but I would encourage you to. Right? He just unpacks what this idea of work is, but there's no hope at the end of it. No matter what you do, no matter how you toil, no matter where you go, there's nothing we can do because this world is just unfair, unjust, oppressive, and cruel. That's all there is. Right? And so those that are dead are better off. Because they are just no more. It's not saying they're better off because they got to go to heaven, because it's not talking about the gospel here. He says just those are dead who are better off, because wherever they are, or however they are, or even if they aren't at all in some ways, at least they're not here. At least their plight of this world and its meaninglessness are somehow over. And man, even better if you're not even born at all, because you can just be naive to the fact that it's an unjust world. Solomon would look, you know, I have, a, I have an eight-month-old. He would look at that eight-month-old and go, man, you've got it great because you haven't seen what's in this world yet. You don't know how crappy it is, how unfair it is, how cruel it is, how demeaning it is, how violent it is. Every minute you spend on this earth, it's just going to get worse and worse and worse and worse. The more you know, the worse it is. That's, that's the passage that we're in in Ecclesiastes. And so he completely unravels as he examines life under the sun because there is no justice. And that is, we have to understand the way, people wouldn't vocalize this, but that's the way the world feels. Part of why we have so much strife in the world today is because people are looking for meaning in everything and meaning doesn't get found anywhere. 
We can't find it anywhere apart from Christ. And so the world is looking and not seeing, and that's frustrating and angering. And so, of course, the world is going to hell. There's no meaning. And those of us who we know that, that don't follow the Lord, that don't understand what comes next, but don't understand the bigger picture of what Christ has done and what God is up to in his kingdom, there's nothing left but despair. And so when the world goes to bits because of the meaninglessness of it all, we shouldn't be surprised. If I am not a Christian, I have no hope in this world. I have no meaning Nothing, nothing brings satisfaction. I see no end in sight to the inhumane injustice that exists in our world today. There's no path forward. It doesn't matter who I elect. It doesn't seem to work. It doesn't matter who sits on the bench of the court. It doesn't seem to be just. Right? Even if I could somehow concoct all of the justice in the world out of thin air, imagine if you got to be the judge, jury, and executioner of all the things of this world. Right? You know in your heart you, you still wouldn't have satisfaction. Right? If, if all the politics went your way and all the court rulings went your way and all the things happened the same way that you want them to go, you still wouldn't have satisfaction because our sense of justice itself is so distorted by sin that we couldn't even create true justice in the world even if we somehow could overcome all of the odds. It's hopeless despair. And here's the real kicker. For us as Christians, a lot of times, we have often felt this way too. Right? Because even though we know Christ and even though we have faith, sometimes it's really hard to live in the reality of it when we look at how crappy and unjust the world is. Right? Right? Raise your hand if at some point since the pandemic, you have seriously doubted and wondered what God is doing in this world. Actually, raise your hand. It's not hypothetical. Right? It's okay. No one's going to smite you because you doubt. Thomas did it, and he was still a disciple afterwards. He didn't get booted, right? We, we feel this way even as Christians who have the gospel. But we look at the world and wonder, man, I, I know that I'm supposed to think and believe that God is going to ultimately do something, but I just I don't know if I see it. I, I just don't know if he's actually right. And so we, we begin to question who God is, we begin to wonder what he's up to, what he's doing. And we think that maybe there is no meaning in the world around us. We've felt like this at all times, once in our life. Right? If nothing else, the last couple of years have put us into this kind of a mindset. Right? We, have, we have a despair we wonder, man, is God ever going to reconcile things? I, I see so many people that, that are good having bad things happen to them. How many of us have known, you know, it's, it's, it's the best of the people who the Lord seems to take early? Why? Why, God? Right? Because we don't see it. And so we, we struggle because we see it constantly. We see the economic injustice. We see racial injustice. We see health injustice. We see religious injustice. And, and we just look around and wonder where he is. It's the number one people reason that people walk away from God, by the way. Right? Because some kind of tragedy strikes and they say, well, where are you now? There's a problem in our world. The beauty for us is that we get to live on the other side of God's redemption. We know Jesus. 
And we know that in the midst of the struggle and the mess and the injustice, that God sent his son into this world to experience that injustice. It's one of the beautiful things about the Christian story versus other religions is that we serve a God who didn't just somehow solve the mess or arbitrarily reign over it or snap his fingers and make things go away, but there's this injustice and oppression, and he doesn't just make it go away for us, but he actually enters it himself and lives it. You want to argue me, anyone in this room, that you are experiencing more injustice and oppression than Jesus Christ experienced in his time on earth. Let's go. We'll go toe-to-toe. You're not going to win that debate, right? God himself entered the injustice and oppression of the world in which we live, and he experienced it, he lived it, he struggled through it, he suffered through it, he died from it, and then he rose so that we might have a hope. And not just a hope, but a pattern laid out to us for how he intends to deal with those struggles in this, world, in this world. And the answer is there is more to life after death. That's, that's the entire sum game of the hope of the Christian life. And that doesn't mean that we never get to experience joy on this side of of things, but, but the reality is that we are aliens of this world. If, if stuff doesn't make sense here, if we don't see a way forward here, if we don't see a way that we're somehow going to dig ourselves out of the injustice here, that's because we probably aren't. God never promises that before we die that somehow all things will fit neatly in the box, that by the time you're on your deathbed, you can look back at your life and then you say, you know what, God in the end righted every wrong. He never makes that promise. Every one of you in this room will die having some sense of unresolved injustice in your life. It's a promise. I can guarantee it. The, The hope that you have is on what comes after death. And that's the pattern that Jesus Christ set. He suffered and suffered and suffered. Jesus wasn't vindicated in his life on earth. The vindication came after he died and rose again. And the pattern that he sets out for us is that we too will die and rise again into wholeness, into perfection, into completion, into a place where there is no more injustice because there it is actually dealt with and put away. That is the hope that we have. And that's the hope that Solomon has, even though at this point he doesn't really even know or understand it yet. And so he moans and he groans because he thinks that this world is all there is. There's more to life than this. The problem is this. We want to put God into our understanding of what justice and oppression are and aren't. There's a a quote that I I pulled from a a, a random old Sunday school curriculum. This is one of those things where I can tell you I didn't write it, I can't tell you who wrote it. But this this is what it says, I love this. The goal of Koheleth, the teacher, the preacher, in pointing out life's randomness and complexity isn't to make us doubt God, but to change us. We try to use God to our benefit. We want to fit God into our life. And when life goes wrong, we want to blame him. The goal isn't to deconstruct God, but to deconstruct ourselves and the false God that we wrongly create to make us feel better about a messy life. We somehow, in many ways, 
want to make God who we think he should be. Right? Like, think about when we say something like, well, a loving God would never. How the heck do you know? Are you him? Right? That's the whole argument in Job when Job starts to say, hey, listen, if you really loved me, you wouldn't have done all these things to me. And he goes, are you, I'm sorry, are you the one who made the mountain there? Like, did you somehow speak words and it showed up? Yeah, I didn't think so. Who are you, Job, to tell me, God, how I should be thinking or doing anything? You, 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 what? Why don't you shut up and do what I'm telling you to do? Now, God's not that mean when he talks. Right? He doesn't speak that directly, but that's what he's saying. We love to box God in. We want him to operate by the way that we perceive justice to be. And here's the sad reality that might hurt a little bit. I have news for you. Your sense of justice is nothing like God's sense of justice. What you think is fair isn't what's actually fair, probably 80% of the time. Our sense of justice is wrong. It's distorted. It's, it's messed up by our own biases, right? And the, and the way I know it's distorted is if you ever think anything should come to you that you deserve, it's, it's wrong because you're a sinner in the sight of God, and the only thing that you actually deserve is pure death. If we all got what we deserved, you wouldn't hear the end of the sermon because all of us would just drop right here, right now. And we don't, and we draw another breath, and hopefully we'll all be drawing breaths when we leave here today, right? Otherwise, the congregational meeting is going to get real awkward, right? But hopefully that's the case because God sustains us in a grace that we don't deserve. It's not fair. God is the one who has a sense of justice, and we should submit ourselves to him. Whatever you think about the world and how it should operate, ought to be submitted under what he thinks the world ought to be and how it should operate. Well, yeah, but, but that's, not, that's not right and fair. Yes, it is. Yeah, but I don't think so. Well, I don't care what you think, says the Lord, not me. I care what you think. Right? But, but that's, that's the harsh reality. Meaning comes when we stop putting the meaning into our boxes and we start to ask God, hey, what, is, what brings us meaning? Where does life come from? Whatever you say is where I will go. I love when the writer says the goal is not to deconstruct God but ourselves. Right? One of my favorite things is when I preach uncomfortable passages and people get animated about it and I'll get the emails the next week and I'll go, well, you know, it's weird. I, I almost thought that the point of the Bible was to make you uncomfortable, not for you to make the Bible uncomfortable. Um, if, if this is a, a book of holy words from the God who created the universe who is perfect and we are a bunch of feeble sinners, well, isn't it inevitable that we ought to find some things in here that we don't really love? Because this book is designed to, to kind of deconstruct us, to shape us. Isn't it logical that, man, we, we should come to church and hear preaching and actually have it kind of change the way we think and operate and perceive the world? Well, I've always looked at the world this way, but God says no. So man, maybe he's right and I'm wrong. I should do something about that, right? The point of scripture is that we deconstruct ourselves in light of who God is as we learn more and more about who he is. In the fancy theology world, we call that sanctification. That's the business that we're to be about. Uh, John Ortberg, one of the pa a pastor, puts it this way. Real freedom is not the external freedom to gratify every appetite. It's the internal freedom not to be enslaved by our appetites. Right? Solomon is currently trying to seek freedom by gratifying every appetite. 
And we might say, well, the true freedom is the ability for us to do whatever we want. No, true freedom is the ability for us to not be enslaved by our desires and instead be submitted to his because we actually think that God's ways are better. It's the ability to let go of what we think is good and right and just in light of what God says is good and right and just. It's our ability to look at the world and say, God never promises that we will find justice in this world. And so we can seek it. We can hope that things are better. And we should. We should try to have the courts be as fair as possible. We should try to end oppression where we see it. We should not film but step in when we see someone fighting another. We should do those things as Christians. But we should do them with the understanding that we'll never get there in this life. And that God is the one that's in control. And if we try to find meaning in some sense of justice in this world, and we're just, we're just going to come up empty. Because I have news for you. It's not going to happen in this lifetime. We can make progress, but we're never going to get there. We're never going to get to a point where the world is fair and we've achieved justice and we can rest on our laurels and just say, you know, this is, this is beautiful. It isn't going to happen on this side of heaven. It's just the truth. Solomon was writing as someone trying to gratify this appetite. He admits it, right? He pursues everything that the flesh has to offer to find meaning, and he can't find it. He can't get his hand on it. It's like the smoke, the vapor. It's heveled to him. He's just grasping it at air. He's chasing the wind. God doesn't give us what we want in this life. He redefines what we want to be what he wants. And when we do that, when we experience his divine justice, it'll shatter our expectations. We'll find ourselves more and more aligned to who Christ is, who God is, and we'll be more and more in line with that. When we pray, one of the things that God does is he doesn't give us the thing that we pray for, but he, he, in our hearts he shapes and mends and, and has us pray for a different thing sometimes. Right? Have you ever find yourself praying for something and, and the Lord somehow gives you satisfaction but in a totally different way? That's the Spirit shaping you into his likeness. He's saying, no, 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 no. You don't, you don't know what you want. I know what you need. Here it is. And you go, wow, that's so much better. It's the beauty of living under the gospel of Christ. Right? As we move closer and closer to the end of Ecclesiastes, what we're going to see is Solomon discover that very reality of where meaning is found. But we won't get there until another three or four weeks. Also, let's pray. Father, we thank you. We thank you that you are the only source of justice. We thank you that in you, when their, when their hope is placed in you, that ultimately we will be able to find meaning. And Lord, we pray that as we continue to explore uh, your, your, your text in Ecclesiastes, that you might teach us exactly how it is that we might get there. How is meaning to be found? How can we have rest for our souls in our quest for the meaning of life? It's not in the things of this world. We know that our meaning isn't found in our work. We know that it's not found in the pleasures of, of life. We know that it's not found in the pursuit of justice in this, in this place, in this world today. But Lord, we, we ask you that you would shape us and make us understand where it is and how it is that we can find meaning and comfort and purpose in you. Continue to shape us as we read. Continue to guide us as we follow along with the, the thought process and the reflections of Solomon who had and tried everything. And Lord, may he be an example to us. It is so hard to believe 
that we can't find satisfaction in the things of this world. Lord, we try. We try every day. Lord, we pray. We pray that we might not have to learn the lesson as hard as Solomon did. We pray that his example might fuel us and have us understand early where true meaning and true satisfaction comes from. That you might guide us towards that truth. We love you and praise you. And together, all his people said, Amen.